Hello and welcome to our FIS podcast, Castaway, keeping you in the know on the shipping and commodity worlds where we're all at home quarantined. We know that the working and business has changed dramatically in the past couple of months, so developing a range of resources to help keep you up to date on everything happening. If you'd like to find out more, you can visit our website, www.freightinvestorservices.com, or follow us on Twitter and LinkedIn. Hello and welcome to the 20th episode, I'll repeat, the 20th episode of Castaway, and we have a full crew in for this special occasion. Uh, joining me in the office, we have Alex and Kerry, you're well acquainted with them. All the way from Singapore, we have Tom, and our special guest today, we have Chris Party, Head of Agribusiness at R1 International. Hello, everyone. Hi, Chris. Morning, guys. So Good we're going to we're going to start with our market news stories and any interesting editorials we've come across the week to give us our context of everything we're going to talk about in terms of the commodity business. Uh, before our main market update uh, this Wednesday, the twelfth of August. Before going on to our special feature, um, worth noting to start before we go into news stories. Uh, we have been following gold for a little while, and it's quite a correction we've had. We, we hit a high on Thursday of uh, $2,075, and that's pulled back to uh, 1863 this morning. Uh, Silvo, silver is even more of a move, correcting some 15% in the last 24 hours, uh, but still up 32% uh, in the month range. Uh, we have had from the, the new story that Kerry brought up last week in terms of uh, what's happened in Lebanon. Uh, yeah. The government have now resigned, uh, and also the news yesterday afternoon just yesterday evening, that Kamala Harris has been announced as Joe Biden's running mate for the election later this year. Very good choice. Cool. So let's jump into the news. Uh, Kerry, why don't we start with you and on a, a topic which we're well acquainted with, the virus. Exactly. Um, not to start with something too depressing, but this news story is from Deutsche Welle, and uh, it is titled Germany Extends Travel Warning to Two More Spanish Regions. But I guess the, uh, the point I want to draw from this is the shocking rise in infections in Spain at the moment. Uh, they've averaged nearly 5,000 new cases a day over the past seven days. Um, and this is now more than just a little bit of a bump. Uh, to put that in perspective, Spain currently has 95 coronavirus cases per 100,000 people. That's compared with 24 in France, 17 in the UK, and 13 in Germany. So, you know, we're now looking at numbers that are looking an awful lot like the beginning of the the first wave, partially up into the first wave, um, and and this is beginning to look an awful lot like a second wave uh, in Spain, at least for the moment. Uh, it's questionable at this point whether that can be brought under control with this number of new cases per day, and the Spanish government is effectively admitting that at this point um, and saying they may have to take some emergency measures. Uh, and I think it's. It's very salient points in light of today's GDP figures, for example, in the UK showing a 20% decline in, uh, in Q2. I think, you know, we are just emerging from the first wave. We're just starting to see the economic effects of the first wave pile up. And I think the second wave is potentially hitting now sooner than many of us expected. So that's something to, to very much watch for. Um, yeah, it's been a, a huge problem for Spain and, yeah. and a country which relies so much on its tourist yeah. industry. They are very reluctant, obviously, to, to close those borders. Yeah. The UK has changed its advice from other countries, and that's having a big impact and a worry in the market that Europe could have a, a Europe-wide resurgence of this virus. Exactly, cool. exactly. So it's something to watch closely. 
Cool. Alex, I want to move on to you. And you have picked up a new story on renewables. Yeah, and it's from Forbes. And it is basically, well, the title is Plumatine Renewable Energy Battery Prices Mean China Could Hit 62% Clean Power and Cut Costs 11% by 2030. So, I mean, look, China's the world's largest greenhouse gas emitter, and it's building the most power plants of any country in the world, making its decarbonisation paramount to preventing dangerous climate change. But the costs of wind, solar and energy storage have fallen so fast that building clean power is now cheaper than building fossil fuels, quite a lot cheaper. So new research shows that plummeting clean energy prices mean China could reliably run its grids on at least 62% non-fossil electricity generation by 2030. So cutting costs 11% compared to a sort of business as usual approach. And, you know, we all know that COVID-19 has sort of sparked this global emissions drop and China's tumbled by an estimated 25% in the first quarter of 2020. However, May data showed a rapid rebound driven by coal power and cement production. And so emissions are up 4 to 5% year over year. China's scale sort of makes these decisions globally important when they're sort of looking at the you know, reduction of emissions. And you know, potentially their decisions can be perilous. Emissions from the country's power sector are comparable to combined power sector emissions from the US and Europe. Um, its coal capacity additions in 2019, for example, accounted for nearly two thirds of all capacity added worldwide. Yet the country has also demonstrated unparalleled ability to scale zero carbon generation. And they currently lead the world in installed wind and solar capacity, as well as nuclear power, right? Um, so, I mean, if the, if, if the rapid downward price trend for renewable energy continues and capital investment choices shift away from fossil fuels, China can provide, like we said earlier on, 62% of the electricity from non-fossil sources by the end of the decade. And that's going to make a huge difference to the world, to how we see energy, to how we treat energy, and our entire perception of the, of the energy markets, I think. And it plays directly into something that you brought, I think it was last week, you were talking about other companies like BP investing a lot more yeah. themselves, whether that's yeah. genuine interest in it or jumping on the attitude of the public. Yes, yeah. it's definitely where the world is moving. Exactly. And it's something we've seen sort of in Europe as well, uh, and to some degree in the States, uh, which is the falling cost of renewables amidst the pandemic in particular. And, um, and the falling cost in storage, I think, which, which is a main part of yeah. it. You know, the, uh, the the fact that the capacity and storage story is coming front and center again yeah. after the WTI issue earlier on in the year. And yeah. this is now uh, moving into the, the renewables. Exactly. Tom, uh, why don't we move on to your new story? And you have one this week, which is on WeChat. Tom, you're on mute, I think. Sorry. Um, yeah, so from me, an article uh, from Bloomberg about uh, Mr. Trump's renewed attacks on uh, China, uh, this time taking pop at um, a couple of particular um, uh, apps, essentially, uh, in China. Uh, WeChat, um, for those of you that aren't aware of what it is, is essentially... It's Spotify, it's WhatsApp, it's uh, yeah, Apple, App Store, everything rolled into one. It's a hugely important piece of technology in China, uh, but it's also a hugely important piece of technology for Western uh, sort of residents uh, speaking to, uh, to China. Uh, WhatsApp is banned in China and it sort of has taken on that role of allowing um, 
you know, non 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 Chinese residents uh, living elsewhere to to speak with people in China, and certainly a lot of businesses use it. We use it as a communications tool, um, so it has some some uh, some big knock on impacts uh, to businesses and individuals alike. Uh, essentially, Tencent has had a monumental year in terms of dollar growth um, through the COVID nineteen crisis essentially uh it's grown 280 billion dollars this year so that's the size of samsung uh and is the fifth biggest dollar gain in the plat on the planet over the over the period from march uh until end of last week and this rally was single-handedly stopped by uh mr trump uh at the back end of last week uh when he signed an executive order to ban u.s entities from dealing with wechat and TikTok. Um, so this is all borne out really from the TikTok spat that I think we were talking about last week. Uh, and he's taken aim at someone else this time, someone with a lot more uh, sort of uh, feelers into the, the, the Western world uh, from a you know more advanced perspective in terms of you know, corporations are using this piece of technology. So Tencent shared 66 billion over two days, uh, paired a bit of it back. Um, but it's been a, a big, big hit for them. Um, and will be interesting to see how this plays out. Interestingly, they're releasing results this evening, or they may just have actually done so. Uh, I haven't seen them as yet. But uh, certainly the executives there will be seeking to reassure the market that um, whatever the White House is throwing at it, they are in a cash position and strategy position to to withstand it. So, you know, the... Uh, the, the damage continues, I guess. The fallout continues from the trade war this time. Very, very targeted, uh, very, very focused. And I think you know, it has sent a lot of jitters through both the Chinese stock market and, the, and the, the US markets as to how this may unfold from a retaliation perspective from the Chinese as well. I guess there's a real example of something very specific which has come out of this uh, kind of souring of relationship between the US and, and China with something which people would have used and not really thought about the impact of it before before it's been banned by, by the US. So, yeah, another thing we're watching in terms of the development of, of that relationship between the world's big powers. Uh, yeah, and, and, and another element of the ongoing disconnection on every level, um, now including communications, apparently, personal communications, yes. Uh, let's quickly move on to my news story, very uh, brief one before moving on to our market updates. I picked up this one from the FT, <clears throat> which was on the exam grade fiasco, which is happening in the in the UK. Um, this is the second part. Um, this is in England, where it's now uh, a serious problem in terms of the virus disruption to actual uh, exams uh, and people relying on predicted grades from teachers which have been adjusted, uh, which has caused all sorts of problems in terms of downgrading uh, of grades, people missing university level, uh, university offers. Um, the same happened in Scotland uh, last week, where they had uh, 125,000 secondary school grades were, were adjusted uh, down, uh, and that's now been reversed. And it seems that the, the English government, English decision about English results as well, has also taken the same same move to try and uh, make it more representative and not penalise people for, for areas and what has been you know, a seriously difficult time for, for secondary school students and getting results which which makes sense. But 
highlighting this is another point of the impact of the virus, probably one we didn't necessarily think might happen several months ago um, and could have a you know, big increase in problems in terms of uh, social mobility, which, have, which we've seen over the last decade, could knock students back. Uh, but something which I thought was, was worth highlighting as something outside of the commodity world, which could definitely have an impact for the businesses and the universities and those going to it. So, um, right, let's move on to our commodity news and overview of our main markets. Kerry, want to give us an overview of what's happening on the dry FFAs? Yeah, well, the, uh, the, the freight market actually failed to meet expectations, I would say. Uh, after the Singapore holidays, I think a lot of people were looking for a further bounce. Optimism had been very high. There was talk on the physical market of that Cape C5 route, the West Australia, China, pushing up to nine bucks. It never really got there. It settled down to region $8 at the moment, or even just below. There are rumors of seven spot 90 being done uh, yesterday evening. Uh, and the 5TC average has now begun to drift a little bit. Uh, it's fallen from 20,700 roughly this time last week to uh, 19,200 today. Um, the front month paper, interestingly, has been almost entirely flat. Uh, it's been steady uh, at just under 22,000, uh, where it was this time last week and where it, was, where it continues to be today. Uh, meanwhile, the Panamaxes are where all the action have really been. Um, they've been pushing very strongly with solid demand in both basins. Uh, Panamax index moved up over $3,000 from 10,500 this time last week. And today we're looking at uh, 13,705. That's for the 4TC average. Uh, with the front month contracts jumping about $1,000, uh, that's September trading, 14200 today. Cool. Thank you, Gary. Uh, on oil, unfortunately, it's a continuation of not much happening. Um, Brent, at the start of the week, we did push above the 45 mark, which is something to note, kind of silently pushing up. Um, we are marginally up where we are this, where we were last time this week. Yeah. Uh, we've seen recovery in the Cal 21 high fives, the high five being the difference between low sulfur uh, fuel content and high sulfur fuel content or kind of scrubber spread as it's as it's known. That's now pushing back up towards $90 levels after looking like it was going to collapse towards 50, which really was wow. putting, um, I guess, worries in those people who invested millions of dollars in, in installing scrubbers yeah. onto, onto <laughs> vessels. So don't worry. It looks like it's moving back up again on the high five uh, spreads. Um, Worth noting that with the roll of the month that we had, uh, those front spreads for all but the Rotterdam 3.5% moved, moved back into, into Contango. But again, we've seen a very strong move on those front spreads uh, in the window trading this morning. Uh, and that has pushed back into backwardation the front months for, for high sulfur fuel or both Sing and Rotterdam uh, and pushing the 0.5% the towards that as well. It does seem to represent what we were talking about last week, where the the very low sulfur fuel oil seems to be well supplied. Uh, unlike what's happening in the high sulfur market, we've talked about the Saudi Arabians importing lots for their power production, uh, all those uh, air conditioning units during the summer. Uh, but this seems that it, you know, it's a, a really good representation of what we've talked about oversupplied on the on the very low sulfur fuel oil. Yeah. Uh, you're seeing uh, contango for, for all those front future levels, unlike in the high sulfur, which is still holding strong uh, but does look like it may start to, to fall away as the, the increase in supply of heavier crudes come from OPEC as uh, their agreement to, to reduce the, the cut by 2 million barrels starts starts to bite. But a continuation of what we've had of 
of not really much happening of interest in the summer. Yes. Yeah. Everyone's on holiday. That's that's my <laughs> Exactly. We're entering that August lull, aren't we? But supply and demand-wise, Kerry, what, why are we seeing these movements? Well, you know, I think one thing on the Capes is that the shortages in the East caused by the crew change issues that were centered on COVID regulations in China in particular uh, seem to be easing a touch. That's easing the congestion, loosening the tonnage supply there. And it's that it was that congestion that had really driven those West Aussie China rates up so much so quickly. Um, and that's allowed that C5 route to start to fall a little bit. Uh, out of Brazil, the story has been one of a standoff. There are quite a few balusters on the Capes now looking for cargo, uh, but so far unwilling to take a major hit uh, with the charters standing back and unwilling to pay last done. Uh, meanwhile, on the Panamax side, the, the tonnage supply in the North Atlantic has been very, very tight, and that's been driving up rates there. From a demand standpoint, um, it's interesting to note that whilst there's been a standoff uh, and indeed a decline on the prompter dates uh, uh, for that C3 route, Brazil, China, the market slightly forward looks quite different. Um, there's a number of charters on the physical market still looking for September tonnage above $18 on that C3. And in fact, the C3 forward curve is reflecting that, interestingly, uh, being marked up at 186 uh, which is very substantially above the $17 spot index on that today. Um, so that reflects the continued optimism about Brazil's output um, of iron ore, which we've talked about fairly endlessly on uh, on this podcast. Um, on the Panamax, we're seeing a lot of business driven right now by the NOPAC grain round trips. That is uh, grain being exported from the U.S. Northwest uh, into China, Japan and Korea. Uh, and that's been driving quite a lot of business in the Pacific. Thank you, Kerry. Uh, on the oil side, it's definitely worth noting some things which we've seen, although we've not had massive movements in the markets. Um, it's not good news for, for Libya or Libyan oil industry. They are still suffering from that three-way civil war, which has blocked any sort of exports of oil for about uh, from, from the start of this year, really. Uh, so they're not coming in. They had just over 1 million barrels per day was their usual production before it all kicked off uh, there. So, you know, you're, this helps OPEC, the rest of OPEC, because, you know, that's not some yeah. more, more production than they have to cut. <laughs> but definitely worth noting if there's a change in the in what's happening there, that that could bring in a lot more oil in terms of supply side uh, for things. There's been a massive reduction, obviously, with um, supply from, yeah. from refiners in, in Asia, which we talked about previously for the very low sulfur fuel oil. That has continued and really been pushed in terms of the amount because of the increase in production from China and India. Yeah. We've we talked previously before recording this podcast about the new Chinese contracts on the fuel law, which they're doing on their, their onshore contracts. Uh, that has been obviously pushed and the, the increase in production has been has been noted in, in the region, uh, making up more than making up for the cuts to, to refinery production from, from other Asian uh, countries. Also in the US, we noted previously that there was a big supply glut and everyone was going for all that, uh, all the all the storage they could find. We saw it in the tanker rates, which pushed up massively uh, at that time. And now we are seeing companies take back supply, which had been stored in the American Strategic Reserve. So they're actually hiring space there for a very, very small amount, but they have until uh, August the 1st to take back that. Otherwise, they're going to have to start paying some increased rates. Uh, and that's going to be some 2.2 million barrels of oil uh, that they're going to have to take back uh, from that reserve. And also, 
take it with a pinch of salt, but Iraq is saying that they were going to be increasing their production cuts. They've been not great in terms of their compliance level for the start of this year, but they're saying that they're going to make an extra 400,000 barrels per day cut in August on top of their output agreement to 1.06 million barrels per day under the OPEC plus deal. So seeing some things which could then impact at the end of this year, especially the change in Libya would have a huge impact on supply uh, and also the changing nature of, of refineries and what they're producing. But demand is just simply on countries coming back online. We talked about the problem with Europe, with yeah. perhaps a second wave that, of course, is going to cause problems and concern in terms of demand for products uh, with already high levels of storage of that. But a news which prompts into the environmental news stories that we've been pushing, uh, Stenabolk have uh, started and they've done a trial of a, uh, a new fuel using cooking oil, which is a blend to uh, actually reduce, reduce their emissions. Um, this obviously has a cost, which is around about $100 more a tonne uh, than usual fuel oil, so it's not going to be rolled out entirely, but can definitely be used in a similar way to the carbon offsetting scheme to help reduce those uh, emissions. But that's what we are seeing uh, on the oil front. Excellent. And just a quick note on the iron ore. I know we don't have time today to talk about every single commodity we'd like to, given our grain special. But um, the market continues to fly, uh, and it continues to achieve levels that I think none of us can quite explain, uh, except for sentiment-driven buying within the Chinese domestic market. that is a lot of retail money flooding into the DCE futures. Um, I just wanted to note that the DCE in the past week has twice sent notices on the regulation of irrational, quote, trade on iron ore products, um, which is usually a sign that uh, they're getting quite concerned that this retail money is driving things too high. Um, it's worth watching what happens here because that often presages some action from the Chinese authorities to try and limit speculation in the market. Uh, so keep an eye on that. But in the meantime, we continue to absolutely fly with that uh, September contract on iron ore still trading about 116 and a quarter, um, a couple bucks above where we were this time last week and the August, uh, you know, remaining balance of the month still up at uh, 120 and a half. Cool. Thank you, everyone. So let's come to our main feature of today. Chris coming in to talk to us about uh, agribusiness. We've given you a a short introduction as the head of agribusiness at R1 International, but I don't know whether, Chris, you want to give us a bit more of a background to yourself uh, for everyone who's listening. Uh, Yeah, thanks for for the introduction. I'm with R1 at the moment, so looking at setting up the agribusiness. R1's a a rubber-focused business, and I've had 30 years in the various agri-commodities, started with uh, the famous John Bann in the 1980s uh, with uh, with Cargill. Uh, I'm going to cover most of the futures, the markets that that have got active futures, so soya, corn and wheat, uh, cotton, coffee, sugar, rubber and cocoa. Um, Very brief comments on most of them. The the general sentiment in in the ag markets is that there is good supply, um, demand is uncertain and has and has in most cases been uh, been reduced by by COVID. Uh, the prices of all the the U.S. futures are running below where they were last year and below the uh, the five year average, um, but they are you know, significantly above in some cases the the lows that were seen post COVID. So we had some some sell offs. So. 
in, in terms of, of reference, <clears throat> the, the soybean price is currently 870. Uh, last year it was 940, and the low that we saw was was 840. So we're, we're, we're up from the lows, but we're below um, in, in dollars the, uh, the the last year's price. In corn, we've been we've been very low priced. We're at 323 today. Um, the low we saw was 320, and last year we're at 330. Um, I won't go through all of the different products, but it's it's just that general theme that uh, crops have been good. Um, we haven't had any uh, any major major crop issues. Uh, we're going to have a, a WASDI report today, which is a World Agriculture Sup Supply and Demand Estimate coming out from the uh, from the USDA. Um, no major surprises are expected. Uh, we are expecting to get a, a record yield for, for soybeans, um, which will, will increase uh, increase the carryout, and we're expecting an increased yield in in corn. So both of those would have a, a further increase in in the U.S. carryout and um, a relatively um, well-supplied global situation where we're not putting up any, we're not expecting any major revisions upwards <laughs> in uh, um, in the estimates for, for demand. Yeah. Uh, in the in the softs, um, cotton, coffee, sugar, rubber, they all had bigger sell-offs due to COVID. So the cotton price went down to a, to a low of 50 cents um, and has, has bounced back up to 63 cents. And so that's had a, a 25, 27% increase from the lows post COVID, but it's not really, really driven by demand and, and outside the, the, the non-US premiums are, are relatively weak. Coffee also had, had a 20% a bounce uh, the second half of July um, and cocoa and rubber have also seen uh, 20% bounces as has there been a bit more investor interest and I've, I've obviously followed the the iron ore price increases um, where you know, that's trading at historic high the, the the main positive factor in the in the ag sector is that prices are relatively low <coughs> versus uh, versus history and versus producer yeah. economics in um, in US dollars um, one factor that um, in Brazil is obviously a big player in in the soybean market, and uh, and there we've got a got a good crop and we've got good forward selling with the with the real relatively weak against the U.S. dollar at 5.4 compared to four last year. So both in coffee and sugar and and to a certain extent uh, corn, but specifically on beans, there's there's good uh, good selling from from the Brazilian farmer. Um, four four big swing factors that uh, that influence to varying degrees the uh, the different ags the U.S. China trade deal and trade yeah. um, conflicts are, are important factors particularly in the soybean trade um, and also in cotton so those would be big two big U.S. flows into um, into China um, there's a, another round of, of talks going on this week. Uh, the oil market you've discussed um, there, particularly for corn and sugar, you get a, a big influence of ethanol production and the lower oil prices are tending to reduce ethanol production. So we're expecting today's WASDI to have uh, a lower U.S. ethanol production and also the potential switch out of, uh, out of ethanol in the, in the sugar complex. Obviously, the, the COVID demand reductions um, you know, talks in the coffee market have been that uh, 
people are, are, are drinking less outside, but obviously some people are, are drinking more at home. But at the moment, the assumption is a reduction in, uh, in consumption. Cotton, uh, people buying less clothes uh, is also a, a reduction, and the, and the rubber market also having uh, you know, very influenced by the automobile, the amount of driving and, uh, and new car purchases. So uh, demand reductions in, in most of those, uh, those products, but the degree of COVID reduction for this crop year, and then what kind of rebound we might get for, for next year is still very much uncertain. And then another factor that's come up um, as we're coming into the Northern Hemisphere with, with you know, pretty big crops is the availability of financing for both the trade and for farmers. There's been a lot of uh, banks that have had, had issues and uh, you know, this week we've had ABN um, announcing that they're scaling back their agribusiness. Uh, we've got SOCGEN and BMP also scaling back in their participating in agribusiness and, and in commodities in general. Uh, and so that's certainly a, a factor to be watched. Ooh, a real so overall, go ahead, sir. I was saying, it's a fantastically wide ranging yeah. uh, overview of everything that we've had. Um, so they cover all bases. Yeah, no, we, we've seen that amazing demand uh, in terms of the agricultural really good yield this year represented in fertilizer prices, uh, something that we, we cover here at FIS, you know, really giving support to, to those things. But I know that the guys here uh, have some questions to ask you, and I think we get your your knowledgeable insight on some some bits and pieces for that. So uh, Alex is going to ask a first question. So Chris, you did touch on it when you were giving us that overview there, but what I wanted to ask was, is it sentiment for the crop or just the currency play that's resulting in an increase in forward sale prices for the 21-22 soybeans out of Mato Grosso? Yeah, I think it's, so there is a definite big impact for, um, for the emerging market currencies and particularly real. So that is encouraging farmers to, to make forward sales. But this, this fight for market share of the, of the China soybean imports, so China imports, it's round numbers, 100 million tonnes. The, the estimate is 96 million tonnes of, of soybean imports. And that the share of Brazilian uh, imports has, has been increasing. And, uh, and you know, the, the period February till September is very focused on Brazil. So it's a, it's, a, it's a nice price in real, even though the price in US dollars is lower than last year. And it's a, a fight for market share into China. China is China represents more than sixty percent of of global trade in, in soybeans. Okay, cool. Kerry, you've got a couple of questions. Yeah, I, I do have a couple of questions um, relating to that soybean uh, business we're talking about. I mean, we're aware that the South American soybean business was originally started, or at least fueled in its growth by <clears throat> American embargoes on soy exports in the seventies leading to huge spikes in prices and forcing Japan to look for other supply avenues at that time. Um, do you think there could be any unforeseen consequences uh, of this current global trade war, this current U.S.-China trade war, in terms of a change in the global trade flows on soil? Yeah, I think, I think it's been a trend, as you say. It started in the 70s, the Brazil soil production, and it was it's a combination of, of growing demand. So, so China's when I, I think my, when I started my career in that in the mid '80s with, with Johnny V, the, the China imports of soya were were, were minimal, uh, and we've and we've rallied quickly to 100 million tons. So it's the, the the trade war issue is encouraging Brazil to to plant more soya. It's a, it's a very efficient efficient flow, um, and you know, the demand for for China 
the meat demand and growth in uh, in their both their population and their and their GDP uh, means that Brazil is the most efficient place to uh, to grow soybeans now, and, uh, and the crop in Brazil is bigger bigger than the U.S. So it, it's a trend that's that's ongoing, and yes, this this trade spat will will keep that trend going. Okay, interesting, interesting. On a slightly more focused note, uh, I also had a question on corn because I noticed you were talking about the ethanol use for that. Um, I mean, given that feed and ethanol uses for the corn um, are effectively capped in the U.S. at this point that would seem to leave the market incredibly exposed to exports. Um, and I understand the WASD report is expecting a fairly healthy crop. So are we looking at a very negative outlook on the corn prices in the short term or? Yeah, as, as I mentioned in the, in, the, in the discussion, corn prices are already quite low. So we're, we're at sort of 320 um, <clears throat> and we, the, the WASD is gonna come, we think with an increased carry out to about 2.75 billion bushels. Um, the, the, the corn situation in, in China is that you know, their annual consumption is about 300 million tons. The estimate of their stocks currently is 200 million tons. So they've got you know, nearly two-thirds of a year worth of, uh, of consumption in stocks. In rice, they, they're carrying 120 million tons out of a, a 200 million ton estimated consumption. Um, the, the U.S. corn S&D is surplus mm -hmm. and the, the need to price into into export markets will keep uh, prices under pressure but it could also be seen as a good timing for for china to take more strategic stocks because their their corn prices have been quite firm they've uh, they've okay. released some rice stocks to help damp, dampen down the uh, the corn price so um yes the question is the u.s corn prices probably will stay under pressure because we've got a good crop we've got reducing ethanol demand and um and then the dependence if china would want to import would they take us corn or would they you know there's, there's brazilian corn available as well so um yeah it doesn't yeah. look like the the corn prices have got a, a big rally potential unless there was a strategic uh, purchase by the by the chinese uh, which i which i wouldn't put out of the question with uh, with with these prices okay interesting thanks a lot Alex is enthusiastically waving his hand. He wants uh, another another question. Um, not to go too Brazil-centric, Chris, but there was an article I came across about a week ago from McKinsey which talked about Brazilian farmers and their approach to or embracing digital sort of measures within their farm. And the article sort of claims because the average Brazilian farmer is a fair bit younger than uh, the American farmer, they have embraced it uh, quite heavily. And sort of the stats it gives, it says that 85% of Brazilian farmers surveyed say they use WhatsApp daily for farm-related purposes. 70% <laughs> use digital channels daily for farm-related matters. And now a third of Brazilian farmers buy and sell seeds, fertilizer, and other aspects of their farming business online. Is the digital impact of, of you know, on farming going to be significant or is it, is it already been around for a while? How, how does that affect things? Well, I think it, it has been around for a while, and obviously those, those stats are thinking in both Brazil and Canada and US, the, the technology that the farmers have and, and, and price access is, is increasing and, and it's increasing the efficiency. It's amazing the scale of, of farming for, for corn and beans and for, for, for sugar, coffee. Brazil is a, is a major, it's the biggest producer of coffee. It's becoming a much bigger producer of cotton. Uh, Sawyer, it's the biggest producer in corn. So, yeah, the digitalization is is a major major factor in that, um, and 
and increasing the efficiency of the of the Brazilian farmer and managing the you know, obviously it's a big logistic chain to get from interior Brazil to, to the ports and that's that that efficiency has also been increasing. Okay, great. Uh, a couple of questions for me to uh, finish off. Um, a big topic which is been discussed uh, across all sectors is the impact of climate change. Uh, and I know it is very difficult to, to speculate on the future, I think, but it is going to have a huge impact on the, on the agribusiness. You've noted uh, today that the we're having really good yields this year, but with more extreme weather uh, and increase in temperatures, this is going to have an impact on, on the agribusiness. Yes, I think it is. I think that the, the positive thing that we've had is that, uh, that the seed breeding technology and to a, to a certain extent GM technology has kept yields increasing in the, in the major producing areas for, for both corn and beans and their resistance to both disease and, uh, and water shortages has, has improved. But, but definitely, so Australia already has issues with water and the cotton crop is, is significantly uh, being reduced because of, of lack of water and, and the grain crops are lower this year. And it is definitely a threat. You know, the, the, the issue that we've got this year, again, the Northern Hemisphere is tending to be the bigger total harvest, although as, as Brazil increases, you're, you're getting a, a more of a 50-50 split. But we, we haven't had big weather problems in any, any crops for quite a few years and climate change and increasing temperatures um, could certainly have, a, have an effect on that and you know, if we would have significant crop problems obviously the, the scale of consumption now that you know, realistically it's, it's Brazil and US that are the two big producing uh, producing areas Australia's got a big big wheat area uh, so yes it is it is going to be a be a factor but we've managed for the last many years to to avoid any big issues and my final question uh, is on politics uh, finish off with it um, US election coming late this year uh, as long as the US president current US president doesn't delay it somehow um, that will obviously have a big impact on the business as you said a big producer the US and I don't know whether you want to try and perhaps outline what would happen in your opinion depending on which of the two contenders does eventually win um, yeah, it's, it's, a, it's, a, it's a tough one. I wouldn't pretend. It, it, obviously, you know, the farming lobby is still quite important. Um, you know, we are at relatively low prices, but having had good yields, the farmers should be, should be doing okay in the US. Um, you know, Trump has, has tried to get the, the deals through for both uh, uh, cotton and, uh, and soya, which are the, the two big influenced, uh, um, influenced products. To be honest, I don't have a, have a strong view or opinion on what, uh, what Biden's approach to, uh, to agriculture in China will be. Obviously, uh, Trump tends to uh, point the picture that he will be more flexible um, trying to deal with China. But uh, um, you know, I think that the fact is that China and the US, for a certain number of these ag products, and, and as I say, specifically soybeans uh, and cotton, to a certain extent corn, um, the US and China need each other. And need to find a solution but in the end the world can get around that uh, different origins get shipped to china and, and the us then goes to, to other origins and it just gets reflected in the basis levels mm. it's the brazil basis for, for soybeans for example is very strong at the moment 
whereas the Brazil basis for cotton is very weak because it's trying to price into the other markets that are, that are non-China. So uh, um, didn't answer your question very, very well, but I don't have a strong opinion, apologies. Yeah, very politician's answer then. <laughs> yeah, exactly. that's right. Exactly. We weren't going to get your political opinions out of you at the end of the podcast. Oh, damn it. <laughs> Yeah. But anyway, thank you very much, uh, Chris, for joining us and uh, giving us an insight to all those commodities you uh, you explained to us. Pleasure. And thank you to our regular guests for this, our 20th episode. So do listen in again next week and uh, hopefully we'll have some more interesting guests for you as well. But thank you, everyone. Thanks a lot. Thanks Cheers. a lot. Cheers.